You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. George J. Mitchell served as a Democratic senator from Maine from 1980 to 1995 and Senate Majority Leader from 1989 to 1995. He was a primary architect of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement for Peace in Northern Ireland. He was chairman of the Walt Disney Company, U.S. Special Envoy for the Middle East Peace, and the author of the Mitchell Report on the Use of Performance-Enhancing Drugs in Baseball, as well as the books The Negotiator and A Path to Peace. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1999. Alone Sakar worked to advance Middle East peace under two U.S. administrations. He served as an advisor to Daniel B. Shapiro, the U.S. ambassador to Israel from 2011 to 2012 in Tel Aviv, and to President Obama's special envoys for Middle East peace, George J. Mitchell and David Hale, from 29 to 2011. Their new book is A Path to Peace, A Brief History of Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and a Way Forward in the Middle East. Thank you for joining me, Senator Mitchell and Mr. Sakar. Thank you very much. We're pleased to be here. Thank you. We forget history at our peril. And what has happened in even the last year in the Middle East has been so tumultuous. The number of events has been so dense and come so fast. It's easy to forget that this problem is about a hundred years old, which you are quick to remind us of in this book. And this began when the countries who won the First World War decided to carve up the Middle East uh, according to their own desires. Uh, Senator Mitchell, talk about the import of understanding the deeper history of this region in order to find a path to peace. After the First World War, the British and French governments, uh, then still in their imperialist mode, uh, implemented a secret agreement that they had made during the war to divide up uh, control of what we now know as the Middle East. Uh, They consulted widely, except that they didn't ask anybody who lived in the Middle East about what should happen. They created new countries that had not previously existed, Iraq and Jordan, Uh, They acted contrary to the manner in which the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman government based in Turkey, had ruled that region for 425 years before it collapsed in the First World War. And it laid the foundation for the upheaval that's going on now. Uh, I might also say that some aspects of the conflict go back even further. The Muslim world, uh, now large and growing, uh, traces its history to the Prophet Muhammad in the 7th century. And the principal division in the Muslim world is between Sunni and Shia. That division occurred following the death of the Prophet Muhammad. It was not a religious difference. It was a political struggle for control of the empire that had been created by two factions. 
That struggle lasted for several decades, culminating when uh, Prince Ali, who is now revered uh, by Shia, uh, was killed, and the the group that won became the Sunni, and the group that lost became the Shia. And that conflict has gone on for 1,400 years, uh, alternating between periods of remission and periods of intensification, and it's now very intense, very widespread, and also includes several conflicts that are internal to each group. There are intra-Sunni disputes, intra-Shia disputes, and many others overlapping, intersecting, some indeed contradictory, that create uh, uh, a, a series of events that are often hard to comprehend uh, and to follow. Alone, uh, talk to us about how some of this deep history uh, that uh, Senator Mitchell was talking about has manifested itself in the 21st century. Well, um, of the many sides of this conflict, and there are many, each side views specifically what has happened to them and is not so clearly able to see what has happened to the other sides. And so they feel a special right or a special uh, uh, ownership of certain parts of the territory and certain claims that they believe are exclusively theirs. And, of course, with the rise of nationalism in the 19th century and in the 20th century and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the drawing of certain borders, these different conflicts and ethnic groups were all put into different countries, frankly. And a lot of what we're seeing today, a lot of the disunity that we're seeing today, a lot of the conflict that we're seeing today is a product of that. Senator Mitchell, you were notably successful in bringing peace to Northern Ireland. And it strikes me that the division you were talking about between Sunni and Shia in the Middle East is a mirror of the religious uh, fractions in Northern Ireland, and I thought that was that's something that hasn't been explored very much. Uh, it is in some respects. Indeed, what is occurring in the Muslim world today, the upheaval, the violence, uh, is also similar to what happened in the Christian world in Western Europe a few hundred years ago. Uh, there were ferocious uh, conflicts that included religions, some of them predominantly, others it was a small part, and the division in Northern Ireland was itself uh, partly religious. Like others, it was partly territory, people disputing control over a territory where both live and have a history. It was partly national identity, whether the people of Northern Ireland are British as the Protestants and Unionists tend to think of themselves, or Irish, as the Catholics and the Nationalists tend to think of themselves. However, uh, in Northern Ireland, although I thought it was very difficult at the time, uh, it really wasn't as complex and difficult as the Middle East. There are more different factors in the Middle East, more internal conflicts, more external factors. There is no counterpart to Iran in Northern Ireland or in the British Isles. And so uh, uh, 
a couple of years ago, I spoke to a large group of Irish Americans in New York, and I said to them, I'm about to say something I never believed I would think, let alone say. I was in Northern Ireland for about five years. I chaired three separate sets of discussions, and I thought it was very difficult, really difficult. And then I went to the Middle East for six months and dealt with Israelis and Arabs, and I thought the Irish were really easy. So I told them a bunch of patsies to deal with. So uh, complicated as one situation may be, the other is much more complicated. I, I think that it's really important to understand the import of story in this conflict because uh, so many people don't understand one another's stories. And just to uh, take it to a personal level, Senator Mitchell, you might be described as the child of a Syrian refugee today, wouldn't you? <laughs> I might be. Uh, my mother was born in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. uh, she was uh, a Maronite Catholic. That's the eastern part of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, she and uh, two of her three sisters emigrated to the United States at a young age. She was 18 at the time and joined a sister who had preceded her. Uh, they, like many immigrants, were attracted to factory towns in the eastern United States. Back then, the textile and footwear industries were booming in places like Maine and New Hampshire and Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Uh, and so there was a huge demand for labor. Much of it came from Quebec, French Canadians from Quebec, but much, many of it from overseas. My father was uh, the orphan son of Irish immigrants. His parents were born in Ireland. Uh, moved to the United States. He was born in Boston, but he never knew his parents. Raised in an orphanage in Boston. Uh, lived there for several years before he was ultimately adopted by an elderly couple from Maine who happened to live next door in a very, uh, it's a slum, was a slum, it's all been taken down now, where immigrants lived in next to factories. And uh, that's where my parents met. Uh, an Irish uh, immigrant orphan and a Lebanese immigrant. I think that your story is so inspiring. Um, your autobiography is really, really interesting. And I think one of the things that comes out of that autobiography is the importance of negotiation to you. Um, and the two of you have been found yourselves uh, presented with what I think is a really interesting problem, and it seems almost intractable, which is a new concept of what is called negotiation. So, Alon, I, I want to ask you about this. There's an idea around, I think, that we used to think that negotiation was this uh, process of talking to somebody, uh, reconciling, making, giving up ground here, taking some ground there, a back and forth. Now it seems like negotiation is seen as... Um, you present somebody with your demands, they present you with theirs, and then you demand that they agree to everything that you ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, Senator Mitchell has had far more experience with negotiations than I have uh, in my life. So I think he would be much more mm -hmm. suited to answer this question. There's no doubt that's the way all negotiations begin. Mm -hmm. The question is, uh, can reasonable people be persuaded in the course of negotiation to accept an outcome that is less than 100% of their demands. Uh, we faced many difficulties in Northern Ireland. Uh, 
And it took a long time. As I said, three separate sets of discussions over a five-year period. And even then, we didn't resolve all of the issues. But a big part of it was getting people to listen and try to comprehend and appreciate the concerns of others. One of the huge factors in all of these conflicts that is little discussed, certainly in this country, is the profound sense of victimization that is felt by all sides. Each side has a national narrative that is based upon the wrongs that have been done to them over their history. And it was best illustrated by an incident that occurred when President Clinton came to Northern Ireland for the first time, the first American president ever to visit Northern Ireland while in office. I set up meetings with him with the two rival leaders. Dr. Ian Paisley was the head of the largest Unionist party, that predominantly Protestant, wanted to stay part of the United Kingdom with England, Scotland, and Wales. And Jerry Adams was the head of Sinn Féin, a political party, nationalist, Catholic, wanted Northern Ireland to become part of a united Ireland. So it was late in the evening. President and I had traveled all day. We were all very tired. Uh, I worried about how the meetings might go. Paisley came in first. I introduced him to the president. We sat down, and Paisley delivered a 30-minute monologue without a single pause or hesitation, describing the history of Northern Ireland, a litany of wrongs done to the Protestants. And most of them were factual, all a long list, going back hundreds of years. Not a glimmer or a hint of recognition that some wrongs may have been perpetrated on the other side as well. But he left in walked Jerry Adams, and he delivered a 30-minute statement of the history of Northern Ireland as seen through the eyes of a Catholic leader. And again, a long list of wrongs going back hundreds of years, not a glimmer or hint of recognition that wrongs were done to the other side. And victimization does that to people. It blinds them to the reality that others may have suffered as well. They become consumed with their own suffering and the wrongdoing done to them. When they left, President Clinton turned to me and said, boy, you really got your hands full here. <laughs> I said, well, that, that's an understatement. But the point I want to make is the narratives are not incorrect. Wrongs have been done, horrible wrongs, but they are incomplete because they pre present one side of the ledger. It's as though your accountant kept a ledger in which only the credits were listed, not the debits or vice versa. And you need to hear both sides to get a comprehension of what they've gone through and how difficult it is for them to listen to the other side. Listening is hard in normal circumstances. We go to a, you go to a Christmas party, you stand there and you talk, and then the other guy starts talking, and you half listen to him, and the other half is thinking of what you're going to say next. And listening to people you don't like, listening to people who've done you harm, listening to people who you disagree with, is darn near impossible for most people. And so people ask me, why did it take five years? I said it took five years because 
for a long time they wouldn't listen. A huge part of the task was just getting them to sit in the same room at the same time. And I'll tell you something interesting. In five years there, three separate sets of discussions, not once, ever, did I get all of the parties in the same room together at the same time. Not once. Much of it was communicating. I learned that a staple part of the politics in Old Nile is the dramatic walkout. You stand up, you give a fiery speech attacking your opponents, and then you slam the papers down on a table and you storm out of the room before they have a chance to respond. And of course, that's not negotiation, that's accusation. That's expressing one point of view without even acknowledging another. So the hardest part is to get them not just to be together, genuinely listen to the other side and think of them not as members of a stereotype other tribe, but as human beings just like you, with concerns, with grievances, with aspirations, with hopes, with fears, the same as we all have. I think that that's, that's a powerful statement of the power of story, that we all have to understand that we're influenced by our own stories and we when we hear a story we are subjected to a series of filters whether we know we are or not well uh, that if i could just say i'm not a scientist but this i know our brains are wired in such a way that when we hear or read information that is consistent with our prior beliefs we receive it well we retain it well and we use it often but when we hear information that is inconsistent with our prior beliefs, it's, we have a tough time absorbing it, we can't remember it, and we never use it. That's why facts are not facts to many people. They're allegations because they're inconsistent with what they believe to be the facts and they won't accept a contrary point of view. We are on the verge of living in a fact-free world. Which is a frightening thought. Uh, Alone, I'd like you to tell me the story of your first sit-down meeting where you found yourself in a room with a representative of one of the factions listening to a story and trying to understand how much of that story was real, how much it was being told to emphasize a position. Well, this happened, I had been working at the State Department for a while before I started working for Senator Mitchell, and it was routine. It happened all the time. We were out in the region looking at what was called the Roadmap for Peace, which President Bush um, unveiled in 2005 and became adopted by the international community in 2006. And the Roadmap called on each party to take certain steps to promote a peace agreement. And both sides accused the other of violating the terms of the agreement consistently, unable to look at their own side that was not abiding by the commitments themselves. And this happened in our one of our first meetings when I was working with Senator Mitchell. He was chairing the meetings. We were in London. The Israeli team was on the other side of the table 
And we were talking to them about the roadmap of some of the very difficult issues. Neither side was living up fully to their commitment. And they would argue among one another, not even with us, over whether they were uh, uh, following some of the commitments or what some of the commitments even were to begin with, what the interpretations of them were. So it gets so complicated in the Middle East because in addition to the victimization and the narratives, there's just everybody's pointing fingers in every direction, including some at themselves. And, and this happens here in in the U.S. too. I think one of the things that's really important, this book has a lot of great factual history that when you read it and see it laid out in the way you guys lay it out, it makes a great deal of sense out of the complete chaos. And that's a, a great thing. But one of the things I think that struck me was the consistency of the American position on settlements. And this goes back 50 years, but our perception of that consistency does not go back 50 years. That's right. Uh, People have short memories. Mm. Uh, Every American president over that period has publicly opposed the policy and actions of the government of Israel with respect to settlements. And during that same time, every Israeli prime minister has either actively supported and pursued settlement construction or condoned settlement construction. So there is a difference between our two governments. Has been for a very long time. That's not surprising. Uh, These are two vibrant democracies. No two governments agree. We don't agree with Canada on a lot of things. And as we see in recent months, we surely don't agree with Mexico on a lot of things. We don't even agree with ourselves. <laughs> we don't agree, agree with ourselves. That's right. There are divisions in each society. So uh, it's not surprising. Uh, it's, it's a, it is a very important and difficult question, but it must be said it is not the only issue and it is not even the dominant issue. Uh, we tried very hard to get the Israelis, the Palestinians, and the other Arabs to take actions that would reduce the level of hostility that existed because recall, if you will, that President Obama was sworn in just four days after the end of a bitter and destructive war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. And when I first went there, days after the president's inauguration, emotions were sky high, hostility was high, mistrust was high. There had been so much damage done on both sides, physically and psychologically. So we knew that we couldn't get them into a negotiation right away. Israel was in the middle of a general election. Uh, And what we tried to do was to get each side to take a series of steps that would enable the temperature to go down, to reduce the amount and level of inflammatory and accusatory talk. Uh, Unfortunately, we did a poor job at explaining that the president's request for a settlement freeze, which was identical in words and scope to that which had been proposed just three years earlier by President George W. Bush. It is an ironic part of history that many of the people 
who ferociously attacked President Obama for proposing a settlement freeze, were silent when President Bush first proposed it three years earlier. But we didn't intend it as a precondition. We asked the Palestinians to reduce incitement, to take other steps to help make it possible. We asked all of the Arab governments to take steps toward normalization of relations with Israel. We believe, I feel very strongly, that it is profoundly contrary to Israel's interests not to have normal relations with the neighboring countries, the Arab countries, particularly the Gulf Arabs, with whom they share much in common now. Their principal objective now is to deter Iran's drive for hegemony in the region. And yet they don't cooperate, even though they have the same foreign policy objective. Uh, and so we weren't able to get any of them to do any of what we asked. The Israelis wouldn't freeze settlements. They did engage, enter into a a 10-month moratorium on new housing sites. The Palestinians said, well, we don't have to do anything. And the Arabs refused to take steps toward normalization because both the Palestinians and other Arabs regarded a full settlement freeze as a necessary precondition to their acting. So we couldn't line up simultaneous action. Everybody wanted it sequential. Make the other guy do it first, then I'll think about doing something. That was sort of the attitude. You know, one of the things I like about both your books that I read, was a willingness to admit that you hadn't done things right. And I think, generally speaking, the the problem is, uh, and, and I'd like to, to, to speak to this a bit alone, is the um, unwillingness, the inability to figure out exactly what to say, to how to, to construct the narrative that you're presenting the people of your country, the peace partners you're working with, the people in your own peace coalition, to get all of that lined up at once to be in line with the facts on the ground and something much more nebulous, the motivations of the people you're negotiating with. Well, I'll say that that is incredibly difficult to do when all the sides want the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's even harder to do when it's not clear that they do because then... Any, any little discrepancy which could otherwise be overcome becomes a huge blowout. It makes the news. It, it's a controversy. And it's used by, the, by each side as a justification for why they can't themselves act. And that's one of the things that Senator Mitchell encountered uh, uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It took a while just to make sure both sides even supported the broad end goal of a two-state solution in the same way. And then even once negotiations were entered into a year and a half after he started, it wasn't even clear that their vision of what a two-state solution looks like was anywhere near the same. So we, it is my personal view that if the parties are truly interested in making progress, if they really are dedicated to an agreement, to the process, then whether or not you can perfectly align all of those things matters much less because they then are invested in overcoming any discrepancy that might be there. But when they're not on the same page, then there's just landmines everywhere and they're going to be exploited. If I could make a comment on that, uh, because you've hit on a very important point here. 
a, a pattern has developed in the region uh, where uh, that where that first came to my attention when I was first asked to go to the Middle East by President Clinton after I left Northern Ireland. The what so-called Second Intifada had broken out, and there was a lot of violence. And the president and leaders in the region asked me to chair an international commission to examine the roots of violence and to make recommendations on how to bring it to an end. In the interim, uh, President Bush was elected, and he took office. He asked us to continue, asked me to stay. And so in the spring of his first year in office, we delivered our report to him. Both the Israelis and the Palestinians said they accepted it with reservations. No action was taken to implement it, and almost immediately the reservations overwhelmed the acceptance. And that happened time and time again in the region. When President Bush proposed his roadmap a few years after the incident I've just described that alone referred to earlier, it's quite detailed. It's, it's, it's a very impressive document when you read it. And we in the book credit President Bush and Secretary of State Rice for making a really important and, and, and determined effort. And both parties accepted that report, the, the plan presented by President Bush, with reservations. And soon the reservations overwhelmed the acceptances because, as Alone pointed out, it required both sides to do things, and neither would do it, claiming that the other side wasn't complying. And so it's a huge obstacle to get an agreement, but that's only the beginning of the problem. Getting <laughs> people to agree is hard. Getting them to do what they agree to do is really hard. <laughs> that sounds uh, challenging, to say the least. You know, you have a, a chapter called Overcoming the Trust Deficit. And this brought to mind something uh, uh, that's called theory of mind. Uh, this is this idea that when we meet people, we construct a model of them in our mind. So we know how we're going to talk to them and how we're going to deal with them. So even when we're not there, we can we have some picture of them. And this trust deficit suggests to me that there are permanent models embedded in the minds of all the parties in this conflict that are based on distrust. Yeah. How can I how call them? I call them stereotypes. Mm, okay, that's yep. perfect. That's yep. perfect. They have a fixed impression of the other side. And I'll give you a good example in Ireland. When I first went to Ireland, it was in 1995, and I ended up going back and forth for five years. I spent a lot of time in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland. There were very fixed images in both societies of the other they almost all were 50 years out of date. <laughs> they were remembering a period long in the past and basically refusing to bring it up to date with the events that occurred in the interim. 
In part, that was reinforced by a barrier that existed between them, not just a psychological barrier, but a physical barrier. There was a boundary that was very hard to cross because of all of the violence and people going back and forth, the boundary became a militarized border, hard to get over. When you are living behind a barrier, you not only can't see the others, you can't see the changes in the others. You can't see that your image of them is based on an historic stereotype that no longer exists, that they live a different way, that they're different people than they were 50 or 100 years ago. And that's why it's so important to remove barriers, not build walls, remove barriers so that there can be interchanges in a way that enables people to see the common humanity of all of us. I've often told a story about Northern Ireland, how in one critical moment, we went, we secluded ourselves away from the press at the U.S. ambassador's residence in London. And I had people from both sides. And we got together for dinner over a large table in the ambassador's residence. And just like they always had, all one group went on one side and all the other group on the other side. And I, know, I said, no, no, everybody's got to be mixed up. And no discussing of issues. They said, what are we going to talk about? I said, Talk about what you talk about in normal life, your kids, your dogs, your, you know, where you go on vacation, when's the last time you saw a movie with your wife, whatever you discuss when you're sitting around with friends. It was hard to do, but they gradually came to engage in other discussion, and I thought maybe begin to see each other as human beings, fellow human beings, not members of an opposite tribe. That's more difficult in the Middle East. It's much more difficult. Nonetheless, that's what has to happen. Both sides have to understand that, yes, they have legitimate grievances. Yes, they have legitimate claims. But in the end, they'll be better off if they reach an agreement. And and I'll close this kind of too long an answer with a reference again to President George W. Bush. In pursuit of his plan, which Alon and I have both referred to, he traveled to Jerusalem in 2008. He spoke to an assembled group of the top leadership of Israel and the Palestinians. And he said to them, you should not only want your objective, you should want the other side to achieve their objective because that's the only way you can get what you want. I thought that was a profound thing. And, you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting about your book is that through this 50-year swipe of history, When you look at all the administrations, Republican and Democratic, you are very careful to give everybody their just due and basically point out that America has had a pretty consistent and pretty, as best as could be hoped in many ways, well-executed policy in the, the Middle East. And I think that that's something that is rapidly getting lost in maybe the last a couple or three years uh, with the last visit from uh, when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was invited over by the Congress in kind of a rebuke of Barack Obama. I thought that we're starting to see uh, the descent of international negotiations into partisan American politics. And 
Could you talk about that? Well, well, I think that would be harmful not just to our society, but also an obstacle to success in Mm -hmm. the objective we want others to achieve. Uh, I think it's very important that they see the United States as a single entity with a unified policy. And part of the reason we wrote this book was to establish the principle, argue for the principle that there is a solution, we hope and pray that it will come soon, and the only way it can happen is through a two-state solution. The two-state solution has been losing ground and support in the United States, in Israel, and among the Palestinians. In what I think is one of the most compelling chapters in our book, written by alone, he analyzes the alternatives to the two-state solution and concludes, in my judgment, persuasively that none of them are feasible. None of them are likely to produce the desired result. And as much as the valid criticism of the two-state solution exists, in the end, that's the only way they can achieve what they all want, which is peace. I believe both sides want peace. I believe both sides would like to get an agreement. The problem is each of them wants it on terms that the other side cannot accept. And can there be common ground? Alone, why don't you talk about that uh, analysis of the two-state solution? I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And some of the alternatives that I, that I read about being floated seem fairly alarming, actually. Well, they, they won't work for all the same reasons that it didn't work in the past. Um, a lot of people who today are disparaging of the two-state solution or believe that it is no longer relevant either don't have an op- uh, another uh, uh, solution to offer or there's some variation of a one-state scenario in which both populations live uh, under one government. And what we conclude in that chapter after some analysis is that that is only going only gonna to lead to intense intercommunal conf- uh, conflict, a lot more hostility, a lot more violence, And that was the same mix that existed when the UN decided to partition the territory in the first place in 1947. That those conditions will exist again. We don't know when that'll happen. It could be soon or it could be in decades. But that will will eventually happen. And as Senator Mitchell said, neither side is going to get what they want. The Palestinians don't get the state and dignity that they want. And the Israelis don't get the security and the dignity that they want. And so, and there are a lot of misconceptions, by the way, on both sides about how to achieve that or how to achieve their desired outcomes. Some on the Palestinian side believe that they don't have to negotiate, that they can go through international institutions or use the international community to force the Israelis to give them a state. That hasn't happened, and it's not going to happen. And on the Israeli side, there are a lot of people who believe that that the current situation can just continue indefinitely, that they can continue this policy of semi-self-rule for the Palestinians in parts of the West Bank that are discontiguous from one another. And we go through an analysis of that in the book too, and that also is not going to happen. So as Senator Mitchell said, really the only way for both sides to achieve what they want to achieve is the two-state solution. And the longer we go on without it, 
The more the options close, the harder it is to negotiate, and the worse the terms are for an agreement for both sides. Senator Mitchell, tell me about your uh, first visit to Jerusalem and the import of that city. And when you look at the map of how that wants to be divided, I, I just think it it's heartbreaking, really. It is one of the most uh, moving and emotional experiences that I've had, and I think that is very likely true of the vast majority of people who have been to Jerusalem. Uh, it is, it is uh, really, really intense when you walk on the ground that Jesus Christ walked on, that Moses walked on, that the prophet Muhammad walked on. I mean, think about that. The three large monotheistic religions in the world which have had such a dramatic influence on the development or lack thereof of human beings for thousands of years, and here you are in the same place. It's very moving, and I believe that going there and experiencing these emotions. I mean, I'm, I, I was raised as a Catholic, and so I was moved by the experiences that were more specific to me. But in fact, Jerusalem is even more intense and more central to the Jewish faith and to the Muslim faith. And so uh, I think it, it, it opens your eyes and your emotions, but it also brings home the significance and the reality and the threat. Jerusalem is all of the things I've described, and it is also now a tinderbox, a place that could explode at any moment and have a huge outbreak of violence, just as happened when the Second Intifada began. It was there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, a physical structure that one wall of is the holiest place in Judaism, and the roof of, what we would think of the roof of, is the holiest place in Islam. And right there, there developed an outbreak, and within four days, a hundred people were dead, and many hundreds injured, and over the next many months, thousands died. And it remains that way today. It, it is a tinderbox. And the, 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 the sense of urgency that we have is that we think this is going to end up being settled. And the question is, does it have to go through another round of violence? Do many more hundreds or thousands of people have to die before a political process takes hold that brings it to an end? The truth is, it's a hard truth to accept. When people aren't dying, there isn't any political pressure. And, and it's, a, it's a tragedy of enormous dimensions. It's numbers to us. I say thousands died, but that means in each case there was a family. There was a father, a mother, a, a wife, a child who, who had to accept the permanency of that loss. And so I, I think that... Uh, the history of this whole region and this process has been where there has been some visible effort trying to move it forward. 
violence and emotions have largely been held at bay. When the process appears to fail completely, there is an outbreak of violence. You can you can assign blame wherever you want. You can accept or not one narrative or another, but the reality is that people are dying. And and you mentioned Northern Ireland at the beginning. People ask me about it all the time. Here's what I feel most about it. There are thousands of people alive today in Northern Ireland who would otherwise not be alive if there had not been a peace agreement. That's the bottom line in all of this. You can rebuild bridges. You can repair buildings. You can construct physical facilities. But it is what is in the human heart and mind that matters. And it is preventing the unnecessary death of so many people and the vast amount of destruction that occurs that is central to this. And one of the motivating reasons for Alone and I is to do what we can in whatever small way we can to help push them toward sitting down and negotiating and reaching an agreement. That's the only way it can be done. The two parties have to negotiate. The two parties have to reach an agreement. They can't do it without our help, but we can't do it without their participation. I'd like both of you to comment on another conflict that's not even really particularly active, though we've talked about it a little bit before, and the player there is Iran, essentially, versus much of the rest of the Middle East. Talk talk about the import of the deal, the nuclear deal that was really mm-hmm. recently reached, and how that helps the process, the peace process. Does it hurt it? And how, the fragility of that deal. Iran has been a state for thousands of years. Anybody familiar with Greek history will recall the struggles between the Greek city-states and the Persians led by Cyrus the Great and a successive line of Iranians, leaders and people, have sought domination of the region in which they exist. Accelerated and intensified with the discovery of oil and the presence of vast reserves in the Persian Gulf. It didn't begin with the current Ayatollahs. The Shah of Iran, supported by the United States, armed by the United States, dispatched a military force to occupy three islands off the coast of what is now the United Arab Emirates. So most Americans underestimate the degree of hostility between the Persians and the Arabs, and it is now accentuated by the religious difference, which has been superimposed on top of that ancient ethnic difference. Iran is the first Shia-dominated state, and Saudi Arabia is, of course, the most significant of the Sunni Arab states, although there are many now in the region. So you have this long history. Let me tell you a story which I've told that adds a humorous insight to this. Uh, Years ago, I was having a dinner with an Arab leader. And he said to me in a joking fashion, he said, Senator, uh, I have this all figured out, the problems with Iran in the region. I said, really, what is it? He said, well, I believe that the Shah of Iran is still alive and he has an office in the White House. And I laughed and said, well, what are you talking about? 
He said, well, think about it this way. This has been going on for thousands of years. He said Iran had a lot of trouble on their northern border, and it bordered on the then Soviet Union. We don't hear much about the United States, but there's an ethnic group called the Azeris. Their homeland is Azerbaijan, but in fact, two-thirds or three-fourths of Azeris live in what is now Iran. And he said uh, they had a border dispute on the north, and the Americans came in and you know, wiped out the Soviet Union. Now they have a very stable border on the north. Then came the Taliban in Afghanistan. That's their eastern border. The Americans came in. They wiped out the Taliban. Now they've got a regime they like, and they have a stable eastern border. On their western border, they had Saddam Hussein. They fought a war with Saddam Hussein. Then the Americans came in and they wiped out Saddam Hussein. Now they have a completely secure eastern border. He said, so they're safe and sound on the northeast and west, and that means they can concentrate all their efforts to the south coming after us. I said, well, I, don't, I know you don't believe the Shah is still alive, but the United States did do all of those things. It was not our intention to achieve the result he described, but in fact, that's what's occurred. How do we deal with Iran's drive for hegemony? It's been going on for a thousand years, and it will go on forever. Of course, the Iranians say this is exactly what you Americans are doing. What was the Monroe Doctrine? What 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 does every country? What did the Soviet Union try to do? What did the British Empire try to do? So they rationalize it. Well, they will continue these efforts. Of that, there will be no doubt. The question is. Will they do it with a nuclear weapon? If they possess a nuclear weapon, their ability to extend their domination of the region will be enormously enhanced. If they don't have one, they'll still continue, but it'll be less effective. And so I support strongly the agreement that President Obama reached, not just between the United States and Iran, but crucially between the United States, China, Russia, Britain, France, and Germany, all on one side of the table and Iran on the other. Iran came to the table because sanctions proposed by the United States and agreed by the other five countries were imposed. They were very effective in adversely hurting the Iranian economy. But they were effective because they were universal, not unilateral U.S. sanctions. While U.S. sanctions still have an effect, no doubt about it, because particularly in the finance area, because the way the international banking system works were so crucial to that, nonetheless, they would not be effective enough to produce this result. So we reached an agreement. When it came to the Congress, the president's critics said, all you have to do is turn them down, increase the sanctions, and they'll come crawling back. But the other five countries with us, China, Russia, Britain, France, and Germany, all said the same thing. No, we won't increase the sanction. We won't continue the sanctions. If the United States rejects this agreement, the sanctions are over. So it was a fantasy to think that we could just increase the sanctions and it'll come crawling back. That was the choice. The other argument made is he could have done better, could have negotiated a better deal. Let me tell you something. I was Senate Majority Leader. I negotiated a deal with my Republican counterparts every day for six years. And almost without exception, when I brought the agreement back, somebody would say, you could have done better. You should have done this. You should have said that. 
you could have done better is the slogan of those who have no alternative. And what's, haven't done anything. <laughs> what's the reality if the agreement had been rejected or it's now torn, torn up? Iran will then renew its effort to obtain a nuclear weapon, and we then have two choices. We tolerate it, which I think we cannot do, or we take military action to destroy it. And having, having torn up the treaty, we're in no position to assemble the international coalition to support that effort, which we would have been if the treaty remains in effect and Iran tries to cheat. And keep in mind, the inspection regime as a result of this agreement is the most strict, intrusive regime in the history of arms control. Iran has reduced its stockpile by 98%, has reduced its operating centrifuges by two-thirds, has disabled a principal reactor, and is subject to intrusive inspection, cameras on site. So to me, the argument is internal politics in America. It isn't the substance of what's happening in the real world. And I believe that if President-elect Trump carries through on his threat to tear up the treaty, it will be a dangerous setback for the United States and for the prospect of reducing the spread of nuclear weapons. And if I could make one final point on that, the United States led the world into the nuclear age. And we have led the world in the effort to restrain their dissemination with considerable success. Although dozens of countries in the world now have the capability to produce nuclear weapons, only nine have done so. I believe if Iran gets a weapon, it will trigger an outbreak in the Middle East and in Asia that could take us from 9 to 19 or 29 in a very short time, thereby increasing the risk of use of nuclear weapons between countries and more dangerously, leakage of nuclear materials to terror and other groups. The agreement is imperfect, as are all human efforts, but it does a very important thing. It deters Iran from a nuclear weapon. And that, I think, is a powerful accomplishment that President Obama deserves credit for. But I emphasize, it was not just the United States. It was United States, China, Russia, Britain, France, and Germany. That's a group of nations you don't often hear mentioned in the same breath or see on the same side of the table. That's right. This book is positive and hopeful, staring into what is arguably the worst diplomatic, military, economic <laughs> mess in the, in the world at this moment. And one of the reasons it is is because you... Uh, have come up with uh, some core definitions, the core issues of the conflict, and more importantly, core means of solving it. Let's talk alone a little bit about some of, some of these um, issues. Uh, territory is the first issue you mentioned. What territory? When? Where? What do you mean by that word? <laughs> well, the basic dispute between the Israelis and the Palestinians is over territory that Israel captured in the 1967 war. That includes the Gaza Strip, it includes the West Bank, and it includes East Jerusalem. What the Palestinians want, and indeed what the international community basically supports, 
is to have a state in that territory. The complication is that over the years, the Israelis have constructed settlements on much of the territory. It doesn't take up you know, huge percentages of the territory, but when you connect them all with roads and whatnot, it, it disrupts the contiguity of the West Bank in particular. Now, every negotiation going back to 2000, so for the last 20 years, has basically involved how do you, redrawing the borders in such a way that you can include most of the settlements on Israel's side of the border with minimal uh, disruption to the contiguity of the Palestinian state and uh, providing uh, the Palestinians with some compensation for that. So that is why in the book we we set forth the principle of the that negotiation should be based on the 1967 borders with agreed swaps. And the swaps refers to the territory that Israel would retain to maintain the most of their uh, most of their settlers and would compensate the Palestinians for that. Now, to be honest, that's not that new. That is something that the Israelis and the Palestinians have discussed for 20 years almost. It's been assumed by most in the international community that that's what's, that's what's going to happen. It's actually the absence of anything new that's remarkable about that because that's where a negotiation will end up if they ever are to reach an agreement. What we suggest in the book is that on the issue of territory and a number of the other permanent status issues, that the next administration and any administration after that that deals with this issue, hopefully not too many more, proceed into negotiations when they have an understanding from the parties that these principles, including the one I just stated on territory, are at least a reasonable basis for discussion. Because one of the big problems that we had in our effort were the fact that the parties defined these issues very differently and the negotiations lacked content because they were unwilling to concede anything on their points without the other side first conceding. And in many ways, they didn't even think they needed to concede on those points. So negotiations under that kind of environment wouldn't bear any fruit. Uh, so that was our purpose of outlining some of these final status uh, uh, provisions that you just mentioned. I, I thought that um, it was it's a really good strategy for the book and for the reader to walk away with from this book with straightforward, concise ideas. And the concision in this book is very admirable. Did you guys have to trim a lot out of this? We did. Uh, the initial manuscript was quite a bit longer. Uh, but the uh, publisher, and we agreed, uh, felt that a, a very long, detailed history of the conflict, which you could easily use a thousand pages and still wouldn't have complete, has been done often by others, and that we would best serve particularly the general reader, not those who follow the ins and outs of this over a long period of time, could benefit from that. And interestingly, the reaction we've gotten at the various events we've attended has been precisely that. Several people have said to me as we've talked after our presentation or we've signed books that, you know, I really appreciated that in just a couple of hours I could sit down and read that history and get an understanding of 
the basics of the conflict without the overwhelming detail that uh, could be used to support that. Uh, now, one of the details that I think that you come at, that you uh, suggested, I thought was very interesting, was establish an international fund for pa- Palestinian refugees. Seems easy and brilliant. Well, what happens in these conflicts is that uh, people agree on what they're going to do, and then they figure out how they're going to do them and how they pay for them. And the result of that is it usually costs much more than it would have had you discussed it in the first place. And secondly, it had it wasn't decisive in the talks because it didn't exist independently as an incentive. So what we've suggested is that there ought to be an international fund created for that purpose in advance to be dispersed only after an agreement is reached uh, satisfactory to the two sides. Then when people go in to negotiate, there's some incentive to them to agree. They have a, a very clear knowledge that if they do agree, certain things are going to happen. They won't have to struggle to make them happen after they agree to do it. And it will save money in the long run. The significance of the United States government is as the world's dominant power, We alone have the capacity to create the conditions to get an agreement, but more significantly, to implement an agreement. Most Americans are not aware when they say, oh, wasn't the treaty between Israel and Egypt brokered by President Carter a great thing? Yes, it was. What is the glue that holds it together? It's $5 billion a year of American (laughs) dollars that go $3 billion to Israel, $2 billion to Egypt. It's now been 37 years. That's $185 billion, and the meter's still running. You're better off getting a fund in advance sufficient to do the job, get the agreement, and get the job done. Makes it better for the parties and a lot better for the United States. I've been speaking with Senator George J. Mitchell, and Alone Sakar. Their new book is A Path to Peace, A Brief History of the Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and a Way Forward in the Middle East. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.